0: My name is Leonidas, and this is Informed Descent. What's up, guys? Welcome to episode seven of Informed Descent, the podcast where we push back against the culture of groupthink and challenge the narrative. Hope you're having a fantastic week. And I just want to say really quickly that I really appreciate the donations and the emails and the messages of encouragement. I try to say that from time to time because man it's it's hard to respond to every message that I get, but I just want you to know how much I appreciate that, and it really means a lot seriously and you know we're running completely on donations right now, so if you've donated to help support the show, thank you so much for your generosity and just you know, supporting and believing in the vision here. I, I really appreciate it. And one other thing I just want to plug next week's episode, uh, we'll have Mark Pellegrino on, and you may know him as Lucifer in the CW show Supernatural, or Deputy Bill Standall in 13 Reasons Why. And he'll be on to discuss a little bit about his experiences in Hollywood as an actor and his overall political philosophy, so definitely make sure you tune in next week for that. Okay, so a lot has happened this past week. The biggest news, of course, is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, which of course means that there is an opening on the Supreme Court bench, and also means a massive controversy over whether or not that vacancy should be filled, which Republicans have stated that it will be filled before the election, which is perfectly constitutional, and Democrats are losing their minds. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on that today, specifically, because what I really want to discuss is the reason why the political left have become so unhinged since she died. I mean, just having complete meltdowns at the prospect of President Trump filling the seat. Now, you may remember back to the absolute insanity surrounding the Kavanaugh appointment and subsequent hearings, which I'm still not over, by the way. And that was some of the most disgusting, straight-up evil politics that I've ever seen. And to do that to someone and and in front of their wife and children, it's just repugnant. And, you know, that whole thing against Brett Kavanaugh and this current tantrum about the possibility of yet another conservative justice being added to the court is all driven by one thing and one thing only, the love for abortion and the fear of losing it. That's it. Now, you can church it up with whatever deflection you want to and pretend like it's all about women's rights or bodily autonomy or whatever it may be, even though no one is actually advocating for violating either of those things. It doesn't matter what fancy robes you try to put on it, it is women and men passionately advocating for legal blessing to kill their children, if that's what they wanna do. And they are fighting tooth and nail, like they're fighting for air, to maintain the ability to do this with impunity. That's what this is about. So let's talk about it. Because I know the main objection is going to be well, it's not a baby. Or you just want to control women. Stop. It's time to be honest about this conversation and look at it for what it is. The main reason the pro life and pro choice sides can't even have a discussion about this is because no one can acknowledge what the actual argument is and can't even agree on simple definitions. And most oftentimes, intentions just get assumed and names are called and the debate is over. And this is what happens with emotional topics. Everything is emotionally driven, while logic and reason are given a back seat to ad hominem. That seems to be the state of most of our political discourse these days, honestly. So let's check emotion at the door for a moment and just look at the facts. The pro-choice argument, at its foundation is that a woman's right to bodily autonomy is sacred, and that violating that right is inherently immoral. The viewpoint on the pro-choice side in regards to the unborn child is simply that it is not a child at all. It is a developing clump of cells that at some point during pregnancy, or even for some people not until after birth, it becomes a human being. And because it is not a human being, the woman's right to privacy with her health care and her bodily autonomy must be protected. Now, the pro-life argument, on the other hand, at its foundation is a belief that life is sacred and that taking an innocent life is inherently immoral. I think other than nihilistic sociopaths, everyone agrees with that statement. I, at least I hope so. And this doesn't require a religious interpretation, though many religious people are pro-life. It merely requires the viewpoint that human life has intrinsic value. So because people who are pro-life view unborn children as human beings, as a human life with intrinsic value, naturally abortion would be seen as ending an innocent human life, and therefore inherently immoral. Or if you want to look at it from a rights aspect, And you believe that human rights are inherent in all human beings, including the right to life, then clearly pro life people would believe that there is a moral and ethical duty to protect those rights, especially when the person in question has no voice and cannot protect their own rights themselves. So it is clear that the two sides aren't even arguing the same topic. Each are focused on different things and disagreeing on the most basic premise which is whether or not the unborn child is indeed a human being. So if we're going to discuss this at all, we have to be able to answer that question. We, we can't even begin to talk about right to privacy or bodily autonomy or any of that until we have an objective, definitive answer to that foundational question. Is a fetus a living human being? And it has to be objective because we've seen historically what happens when you subjectively define the word human being and make arbitrary designations about who does and does not qualify as a person. And we'll talk about that more later. Okay, so the question is, what is a human life? How do we define it? Many times in these discussions, the question actually becomes, when does a human life begin? But Even that isn't foundational enough because in order to answer that question, you have to first define human life. How do we determine when life begins if we can't even define what it is? So we have to decide what is a human life. Now again, we're starting with the agreement that human life has intrinsic value and that all human beings have human rights, specifically the right to life. So in order for abortion to be a moral and ethical practice, We must be able to prove that an unborn child is not a human life with intrinsic value and human rights. So what is a human life? Let's break it down and examine both the term human and the term life. Let's begin with what is a human according to biological science? A human being quite simply is an organism of the homo sapiens species. One of the surer ways to distinguish one species of organism from another is through genetics. Without getting too deep into scientific terminology, we can just say that a human has a particular genetic makeup that is unique to the species. So you can do genetic testing, and if that organism has a genetic makeup of a human, then that organism is unquestionably a human being. It's not going to be a squirrel or something else. And another way to be sure is to look at the biological facts of reproduction. Both scientific reasoning and common sense tells us that if the parents are human, it logically follows that the offspring is also human, as opposed to something else. Now one of the key points here is the distinction between organism and non-organism, right? An objection to this is normally that a developing human is merely a clump of cells and not an organism. But is it? What is the biological definition of an organism? It is an individual animal, plant, or single-celled life form. My old biology textbook says any living entity that is a distinct individual that contains one or more cells. And given the fact that this supposed clump of cells has its own unique human genome, meaning it is distinct from the mother as opposed to being merely a part of her, as is argued sometimes, it can objectively be said that a fetus is indeed a distinct individual of the Homo sapiens species that contains one or more cells and is therefore, according to biological science, an organism. So if a human being is defined as an organism of the Homo sapiens species, and a fetus is indeed an organism of the Homo sapiens species, then we must conclude that a fetus is a human being. Okay. But what about life? Again, according to biology, an organism must exhibit what are called the properties of life in order to be considered living. Those properties are cellular organization, responsiveness to stimuli, reproduction, growth and development, regulation, homeostasis, and energy processing. Now, is there anything on that list that disqualifies a fetus from being classified as alive? I mean, firstly, this question to me is an absurd one on its face, because the definition of life is the condition that distinguishes animals and plants from inorganic matter, including the capacity for growth, reproduction, functional activity, and continual change preceding death. Obviously, the opposite of being alive is being dead. And I don't know anyone who would classify a developing fetus as being dead, even if they claim it's a clump of cells. So the argument doesn't even work on a common sense level. But for the sake of being objective, we should look at the facts anyway. And when you do, it's obvious. Cellular organization is apparent. It's responsive to stimuli. It is clearly growing and developing, has regulatory mechanisms in place, and there is plenty of research on fetal homeostasis and metabolic activities. The only thing that doesn't really check out on the list is reproduction. But inability to reproduce at a certain stage of development doesn't disqualify a human being from being considered alive, clearly. Reproduction in humans doesn't even become possible until puberty. So we're talking about genetics here, and potential to reproduce as an adult in a given species. So a fetus checks all the boxes. It is alive, according to biology. So we've now established, objectively, that a fetus is both alive and a human being, which means that it has human rights. But what else is there to discuss? Viability, dependency on the mother, sentience, all of these are arbitrary qualifiers that have nothing to do with the biological definition of human life. And one of the arguments I hear a lot is that people can be alive on life support and we take them off when they have no brain function. So therefore, it is ethical to kill a fetus. The one thing about these arguments is that they're retroactive. They aren't born from a need for scientific understanding or any kind of quest for truth. They're born solely from a need to justify the act of abortion. That's where these arbitrary arguments and subjective qualifiers come from. They simply would not exist as arguments if the need to justify abortion did not exist. So back to this argument about life support. The question is... Why are people removed from life support? It is because it has been determined that there's no reasonable possibility that that person can recover. Now, you can imagine if there was a very high possibility that that person would recover and you, knowing this, took them off life support anyway, without their consent, that would be murder. So the argument is not a good one unless there's something wrong with the baby and it can't survive. But even then, doctors have been known to give the wrong diagnosis. The, you know, the baby ends up turning out just fine. But regardless, that discussion, at least, is acknowledging that uh, the unborn child is a living human being. So is abortion ever justified? I don't really think so. If we acknowledge that the unborn child is a human being with human rights... That makes it extremely difficult to justify homicide, particularly the homicide of an innocent child. As adults, we sometimes do justify homicide, self-defense being the most obvious example. Also, withholding of care could fall under that classification in scenarios where there are mass casualties and first responders have to do emergency triage, where they're forced to decide who they will treat and who they will let die based on severity of injuries, which is a horrible decision, obviously. But if they don't do that, they risk losing more patients. So it could be said that in emergency situations, it may be justified when the life of the mother is in imminent danger, for example. But, but that would just be an emergency delivery. And then depending on the age of the fetus, it may or may not be able to survive. And of course, that's tragic. No one ever wants anyone to go through that actually going in and ripping the baby apart limb from limb and then sucking out the body parts with a vacuum, that is never, ever justified. Ever. Now, one of the worst arguments, in my opinion, is when people actually outright acknowledge that an unborn child is, in fact, an unborn child, but they claim that the mother's bodily autonomy trumps the baby's right to live. Now, they don't frame it that way, but that's exactly what it is. They'll say that no one should be forced to use their body to keep someone else alive. And then they often go on to call the baby a parasite. Hey, man, come on. You know the cognitive dissonance is strong when you can be that callous and dismissive of human life. These are people desperately trying to convince themselves that they aren't monsters. But then they say monstrous things like that. It's just mind-boggling but okay, let's, let's examine the argument anyway. The logic of it doesn't hold up at all. In nearly all cases, the baby is only there in the first place because of the behavior of the mother and the father. They are directly responsible for that baby's existence. It didn't just appear out of nowhere and suddenly need the mother to survive. No, they put the baby there. So logically, the decision of whether or not to use one's own body to keep another person alive was made when the woman decided to have sex. And even with birth control and precautions, you still know that there is a risk of pregnancy that is directly associated with having sex. If you don't have sex, you have zero risk of getting pregnant. This is not a surprise. So the argument you're making is that the baby should be held responsible for choices that you made. You are deflecting away responsibility and deciding that you cannot bear the cost of your own behavior and that the way out is to make the baby pay that cost instead. The only place this bodily autonomy argument makes a lick of sense is in cases of rape because the woman obviously did not choose to engage in that behavior that led to the baby being there. You know These cases account for less than 1% of all abortions, but they still do need to be addressed. Cases involving rape and incest, you know, clearly tragic situations, but you have to ask yourself a simple question. Would it be justifiable to kill a born child, like a toddler, because they were the product of a rape or incest? If the answer is no, then it isn't justifiable to kill an unborn child either. What happens in these situations is that a woman is victimized. And if she gets pregnant, the child is also a victim. Killing the child creates further victimization. The person that should be held accountable is not the child, it should be the rapist. There should be recompense and harsher penalties commensurate with the level of crime that was committed. So instead of one victim, the rapist should be held accountable for two but killing the baby is not the answer. We need to care about the victim and her trauma and find ways to help her, absolutely. But we can't victimize someone else. That is not the answer. So consider a thought experiment. If you're out in the middle of nowhere by yourself and won't be able to make it back to civilization for a year, and somehow someone leaves a baby on your doorstep, now you have a decision to make. Do you leave the baby outside to freeze to death? Do you shoot it? Do you rip it apart limb from limb? Or do you take it in? And despite the obvious inconvenience and the violation of your own autonomy, take that baby inside and care for it until you can get to a place where you can give it to another family. And then hold the person who left the baby responsible for everything that they put you through. Once you begin relating these arguments to born children, it is clear that killing the child, regardless of the circumstance, is not acceptable. It's just not. I mentioned earlier that history has taught us over and over again about the evils associated with dehumanization. And whenever it's been subjectively and arbitrarily decided who and who is not a human being, it's always been to justify abhorrent acts toward human beings. You often hear the argument that there is a difference between a human being and a person. And this is and always has been a psychological coping mechanism used to divorce the act being done from the actual implications of it. If you can convince yourself that what it is that you're doing and supporting doing is not being done to an actual person, then you avoid the psychological turmoil that you'd experience where you're doing that to someone you believe to be an actual person. In the book, Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning, Browning talks about how ordinary everyday Germans were conscripted into a police battalion and eventually became mass murderers, executioners of Jewish people. In order to do that, to to march families into the woods and line them up in front of a ditch and shoot them in the back of the head. In order to do that over and over and over again, they had to stop seeing the Jews as people. They needed them to be something less than human. In American slavery, African slaves were likewise viewed as something less than human, property of their owners. This kind of categorization allowed slave owners and supporters of slavery to ease their conscience. By convincing themselves that African slaves were not actually people, it justified what they did to them. Now, The famous Supreme Court case, Dred Scott v. Sanford, made this explicit by stating that slaves, even supposed former slaves, could not be American citizens with civil rights, but remain the property of their owners, property the court could not legally deprive the owners of. In essence, black people were considered things and not persons under the law. People get upset when I compare abortion to slavery, but there are many similarities. I can't help it. And what people fail to realize is that just because we find slavery abhorrent now, that was not necessarily the case back then. As things got closer to abolition, people began realizing just how unethical slavery was, but many people back then viewed slavery much like many people view abortion now. They thought it was necessary. They thought abolishing it would make things worse, that it would impose significant economic costs on them. They thought it was none of the government's business. They thought that the human beings in question did not have personhood and therefore did not have civil rights. And the Supreme Court agreed with all of that, just like abortion. I say frequently that future generations will look back on us the same way we look back on those who lived through slavery and will ask themselves the same question that we do. How could they have let that happen? But you look around and people are becoming more and more unhinged about this and more and more radical. I mean, we've gone from safe and rare to shout your abortion. Even have people supporting abortion up to the moment of birth and just utter madness about the whole thing. And then they did what they did to Kavanaugh. Not because of typical partisan foolishness, And not really even anything to do with Kavanaugh himself, other than the threat of having Roe v. Wade overturned. Just the possibility made them completely lose it. And then you have Alyssa Milano banging on the doors and chanting and screaming. Mobs of people outside screaming and crying and having all of these meltdowns. Harassing Jeff Flake in the elevator. It's mad. Why? Abortion. That's it. And now another conservative justice is going to face the fire, looking like it's going to be Amy Coney Barrett. And they will try to destroy her too. They're already trying to go after her faith as a Catholic. And the only reason for it is to try to protect abortion. It's a sickness. I don't know how else to categorize it. And you know, I look at how our society reacts to a criminal being killed when they perceive them to be innocent. And the outrage is palpable. But millions of innocent babies? Nothing. And I've said before that one of the greatest sins of our society is our inability and unwillingness to protect innocent children while we move mountains to protect criminals. Future generations will look back on us in disgust and just won't understand what we were thinking. And I can't blame them. But you know, I do understand some of the pushback at this point. There is a bit of an incentive to resist admitting what abortion is. Because if you admit to what it actually is, then you will have to admit that you supported it. And nobody is going to want to embrace that. For me though, it's, it's really not about condemnation. We can't bring those babies back. So I have no interest in condemning people who have had abortions or people who have supported abortion in the past and changed their minds. I welcome them into the fold because that's a victory. We can't change what's already happened, but we can make a difference for the future. And I think what we need to do is to formally and legally acknowledge that an unborn child is a human being with human rights including the right to life. And once we do that, then all further arguments can be had through that lens. And abortion essentially outlaws itself because it will have to jump through the hoops of justifiable homicide if it wants to exist. And so we need a paradigm shift in our society. And it starts with recognizing the value and sanctity of life specifically as it applies to unborn children, because life as we know is precious. I have four kids, and as a parent who loves their kids, you understand very well that children are gifts from God. Life itself is the most precious gift that we have, yet it's so easy to take for granted. Human life, particularly innocent human life, the most innocent life among us, is the most precious thing in the world and we have a duty to protect it. Thanks for listening. I'm Leonidas and this has been Informed dissent. If you'd like to help support the show through donation, you can do so at donorbox.org/leonidas. D O N O R B O X.org/leonidas. I really appreciate that. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe, give it a five-star rating, share with your friends. Also, follow me on social media at Leonidas Johnson, And check out my website, LeonidasJohnson.com. And always remember, do your own research, challenge everything. Don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe. See you next week. God bless.